Okay, our scripture reading today is from Revelation 13, verses 5 through 10, and we're continuing in our uh, sermon series in the book of Revelation. It's found on page uh, 1035 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along, and if you do not have a Bible, you're always welcome to take that one home with you. Okay, verses 5 through 10 of Revelation 13. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kate. Good morning to uh, each of you who are here. We're grateful that you're with us. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and we're so glad that you're here today. And uh, of course, we have many who are joining us online as well and are grateful that the Spirit unites us together as one body, uh, whether we're here in person or across our city or even around the world with our brothers and sisters uh, in other places. And as we continue studying the book of Revelation this morning, I want to begin uh, by praying. And we always need uh, help understanding and interpreting and applying God's word in our lives. But the book of Revelation is a particularly challenging type of literature. And so all the more this morning, I want to ask uh, for God's help that we would hear his voice clearly in this uh, passage this morning. So let's do that together. Father in heaven, thank you that you uh, have spoken to us not only um, in letters um, or in narratives, but also in this kind of um, highly uh, sort of imaginative um, genre of, of apocalyptic that grabs uh, kind of our right brain imaginations with images and symbols and pictures. And uh, we pray that we would receive what you have for us in this book, in this passage this morning, um, that we might see the king who is on the throne, the lamb who is slain more clearly and follow him more faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Spirit, amen. Well, can you tell a counterfeit from something that is genuine? Can you tell a counterfeit from something that is genuine? And fakes are everywhere, whether it's knockoff luxury goods to spam emails that seem like they are coming from your boss or some uh, official organization, and the better the fake is, the harder it is to detect. But can you tell the difference between the fake and the real? And in this moment, there is an emerging technology called a deep fake. Have you heard of this before, or deep faking? And it can make it incredibly difficult to detect the real from the fake, especially in videos. And uh, the PBS program Nova recently did a short piece on this. Take a look at this clip to help families refinance their homes, to invest in things like high-tech manufacturing, clean energy, and the infrastructure that creates good new jobs. 
You see, I would never say these things, at least not in a public address, but someone else would. Someone like Jordan Peele. It's sort of learning to recreate that person's face by looking at the thousands of images over and over and over. <laughs> like a lot more research than you would think would uh, would go into making a goofy video or something like that. Truly surprising for me. Um, yeah, I, I was just really surprised. I didn't do any after touching on that video. That was just using the technology that was available from the machine learning side. It's pretty wild. Now, while deep learning and artificial intelligence technology used to create these deep fake videos is a relatively recent development, spiritual deep fakes are nothing new. In fact, they have been around from the moment that the serpent slithered up to Eve and asked, did God really say? And one of the main warnings of the book of Revelation is that there are many Jesus deepfakes out there in the world. And many of them are so good, so compelling, that unless we are constantly attuned to the vision of, of Jesus that is presented in the Gospels, that is elaborated on in the rest of the New Testament, and here in the book of Revelation, we run the risk of being duped by them. And in Revelation chapters 12 and 13, we are introduced to these beasts. And, and whomever or whatever they are, it is the exact opposite of Jesus, but a subtle and eerie similarity ha they have to him. They, they look and sound like, or try to look and sound like Jesus. And so this means that the church's greatest threat is not from unbelief or moral failure. It is being led astray by a power that is almost Jesus, but not quite. You see, an almost Jesus is an absolute threat. An almost Jesus is an absolute threat. An almost Christ is an anti-Christ. And getting duped by a deepfake Jesus is far worse than having your credit card information stolen because you were lured into a phishing email. And today we're going to look at three insights from the book of Revelation, in particular here in chapters 12 and 13, that will help us to keep from being duped by an almost Jesus. So three insights that will help us keep from being duped by an almost Jesus. And the first insight is this, that we are in a battle. We are in a battle. It's one of the, the metaphors, one of the images that the book of Revelation employs regularly is that we are in a battle. So take a look at this in, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. It says, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and was no longer, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver, the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, he and his angels were thrown down with him. And then later on in chapter 13, verse 7, we also heard the scripture reading, Kate read for us, that the beast is allowed to make war on the saints, to make war on God's people, followers of Jesus. 
So we have to remember, if we're going to keep from being duped by a deep fake, that we are in a battle. But what is the nature of this battle? And who are, are the combatants in the conflict? And, and how are they symbolically depicted here in Revelation 12 and 13? And, and these questions give us an opportunity again to look at, and we've been trying to do this each week, spend some time asking, how do we read Revelation well? How do we read this kind of literature well? And in these chapters, we are introduced to a number of characters and symbols. There is a woman in labor. There is a red dragon. There is a male child born of the woman, Michael and his angels, uh, the dragon and his angels the offspring of the woman, which is different than the male child, the beast that rises out of the sea, the beast that rises out of the earth. And there's a lot there. We don't have time to go through every one of those symbols in depth here. But there are kind of three big categories of characters in these two chapters. And the one is, is, is divine, God. Uh, in particular, the male child born of the woman is Jesus, the slain lamb, the king of kings, the lord of lords. So we have a group of divine characters, God himself, Jesus, the lamb who is slain. Uh, there's also the category of humans, the, the saints, those who are, have war being made against them. So there's a set of human characters in these chapters. There are also characters, human characters who are lined against the lamb and his followers. So we have a divine character, we have human characters, but there's a third category here. Th th those of us who have been shaped by sort of especially Western thought, especially late modern Western thought, give almost no thought to, no thought to at all, or even if we do, it is not in a, in a way that we take them very seriously. And that is the category of intelligent spiritual beings known as angels and demons. But they abound here in this passage. Uh, the dragon uh, slash serpent, Michael and his angels, the dragon and his angels, the beasts of the earth and the sea. These are all these kind of characters that fit in this middle category that they're not human characters, not divine characters. They are intelligent spiritual characters, both aligned with and aligned against the Lamb. But because of our materialist bias as a culture that tends to say only what we can see and measure using the scientific method, um, that we can sort of taste and touch and weigh and feel, that, that that tends to be where we cap reality, what can be really known, we easily fall prey to what uh, missiologist and Christian anthropologist Paul Hebert dubbed the flaw of the excluded middle. The flaw of the excluded middle. Listen to how he describes it. And he was writing about this during his, his work as a, you know, a missiologist, as someone who kind of tries to think about cultures, and anthropology. And this is, he did a lot of work in India. And this is, he's writing about his time in India. He said, the reason for my uneasiness with the biblical and Indian worldview should now be clear. I had excluded the middle level of the supernatural, but this worldly beings and forces of my own, from my own worldview. For me, the middle zone did not really exist. Unlike Indian villagers, I had given little thought to the spirits of this world, to local ancestors or ghosts, or to the souls of animals. For, these belong, for me, these belong to the realm of fairies, trolls, and other mythical beings. And again, depending on your background, this may be one of your biggest struggles with the Christian faith. The seeming in the implausibility of the belief that there are supernatural sort of intelligent spiritual forces, angels and demons in the world. But on the other hand, there are also in this cultural moment many who are increasingly drawn 
to the world of the kind of the, the spiritual realm, whether that be in seeking in the kind of the world, realm of astrology or Christians or, or crystals or Wiccan or neo-paganism, all of these things are on the rise. And for Christians, the point of departure with those who would hold that there is this kind of spiritual realm, it's not that there such creatures or such reality doesn't exist, but rather in what our relationship to it ought to be. See, our great enemy in the battle employs different strategies at different times with different people and different cultures. And no one captures this better than C.S. Lewis in his preface or his introduction to his book, The Screwtape Letters. He writes, by the way, if you've never read that book, I mean, just, you know, maybe not write this second, but sometime later on today, pull out your phone, go on Amazon, uh, order it. It's one of the best. But he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors which our race can fall into about the devils, about demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist or the magician with the same delight. We must take these beings seriously. And sometimes kids are better at this than we are. In fact, uh, a few weeks ago, one of our kids was praying at a meal, and she just prayed that God would restore our souls. They've been memorizing Psalm 23, so I love that language came into their prayer. And that they would protect us, God would protect us from creatures who would harm us. It's a good prayer to pray. It's a good prayer to pray. There's a reason that Jesus says you must be like a little child enter his kingdom. The older we get, the less enchanted our worlds become. And the easier it is to forget that we are in a battle and that the players in that battle are more than just flesh and blood. And when we forget this, we've already conceded much and put ourselves at great risk of being duped by an almost Jesus Because as the Apostle Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 11, the enemy often masks himself as an angel of light. Often masks himself as an angel of light, which leads to our second insight here in this passage, and that is that these chapters in Revelation also give us the insight that our enemy is masked. Our enemy is masked. The enemy comes masked as an almost Jesus, so close, an almost Christ who is yet an antichrist. And these two chapters are a word of warning to the church to be on guard against the cunning and deceptive power of our enemy. Because nobody knowingly, willingly, wantingly chooses to be led astray. But the evil one is a master of the deep fake. And you see it in several places, particularly here in chapter 13. Look at these couple of verses and look at how the imagery that is used is so similar in some ways to how God, the Lamb, has been described in other places. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its heads, horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. You see this language of crowns and thorns and authority. This is all imagery that's been used to describe Jesus early in the book. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its wound was healed, and the earth marveled as they followed the beast. This is, again, a counterfeit of Jesus who was crucified but rose again. 
And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? That's the first beast. The second one that's described here in verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, earth, and it had two horns like a lamb. Again, how has Jesus been described all throughout the book of Revelation? A lamb. And it spoke like a dragon, and it exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. And it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives. It deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now, I mean, you would be forgiven for reading those passages and saying, look, if I saw a beast that looked like that, there's no way I'm confusing that for Jesus. It's so obvious that these kind of horrible, ugly mashup of you know, different animals and horns, and there's no way I'm mistaking that for Jesus. And that's the point of the symbols in Revelation. It's how apocalyptic images work. They're uncovering what is really real that we would otherwise miss. They're saying there are Jesus fakes that are out there. But if you pull back the sheet, this is these kind of horrible beasts is what you find just underneath. That is what Revelation is trying to do, to get us to see, to, to engage our imaginations for what we otherwise might miss. It's how they work. They're uncovering what is really real. And one of my favorite uh, examples of this is the painting um, called The Temptation of St. Anthony by the 16th century artist Jeans de Welscock. And you see in this painting, there's this, this beautiful woman. I've, I've shown this before because I, I love this. Uh, it's probably the third or fourth sermon I've used this in my time here at Brookside. But so some of you know the trick in this picture. But you've got this woman who's offering this gift to St. Anthony, and he's kind of sending it away, Right? But why? Just look underneath the surface and there is a monster. Because if you zoom in here, look, there's a, I love this, it's so subtle, but underneath is a claw. So often the enemy comes as an angel of light bearing gifts, saying here's a good thing, but just underneath is the claw. What John is doing in these chapters is pulling the robe of the gift-giving beauty to reveal the monster underneath. He's saying that almost Jesus's look good, but if you pull back the shroud, you get the beast of the land and the beast of the sea. Uh, another less highbrow cultural example of this is the, uh, the Men in Black movies back from 1997. I looked up when the first movie came out, so already it's like, wow, that's old. Some of you uh, probably never even saw these movies. But the original Men in Black movies, and there's this, this guy, Edgar the Bug, the bug Man, and, and he looks like there's just something kind of off with him, right? <laughs> and later on in the movie, he's revealed to be that this guy is, is actually hiding inside of him, right? So this is the, uh, the monster that was inside of Edgar the bug guy. Again, this is what John, I'm just using these images, this is what John is trying to do. He's saying there are, are temptations out there, the enemy coming as, a, as an angel of light, but just underneath is, is a monster, these beasts, Give us an imagine to see the evil in our world is not just human pride or selfishness or greed or lust or prejudice or lack of education, but that under the glittering allure of the idols of power and consumerism and comfort and sex and money and ego, an image is a monster. The great dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. 
the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them day and night before our God. John is turning up the symbolism so that we can see what we would otherwise miss. The beast is almost like Jesus. Right? He's pretending to be Jesus, but better. He's like Jesus who has a mortal wound but was healed, but instead of just one crown, he's got ten crowns. Instead of being a weak lamb, he's a powerful beast with multiple crowns on his head. He draws people to worship him and the dragon, and from the sea even pretends to look like a lamb who's able to perform signs and miracles like Jesus and the prophets did, but his words reveal that he is a deep fake. And the deception continues all the way down to the end of the chapter until you get one, actually one of the most well-known parts of Revelation that has sort of even entered into our popular cultural imagination. That is this language of the mark of the beast and the number 666, right? Even if you uh, are very new to church, uh, there's a good chance that if you've been around uh, sort of American popular culture um, that you've heard the idea of the mark of the beast or the, the a superstition around the number 666. And there's actually a, a technical name, I, I read this in a book a few weeks ago, for the, 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 for the a condition of the fear of the number 666. And it's called hexacosoi, hexaconta, hexaphobia. So um, there's a, a big word for you. Uh, that's a, being afraid of the number 666. But what is that number all about? Why does that come up? Why has that captured our imagination? What, and what is this mark of the beast? Well, remember that numbers in the book of Revelation are, have highly symbolic functions, right? So number seven is the number of completeness, modeled back after that day, the seven day of the complete week of creation, um, you know, it's fullness and goodness and perfection. The number three is uh, the triune number, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So, so the triune number of the triune God, who is perfect and complete in three, would be, you could have seven, 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 right? So seven is the number of completion times the three ideas of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So 666, again, it's a deep fake. It's close. It's almost there, but it's just off. Um, however, all commentators also point out that this idea of 666 should also be understood as um, in light of an ancient literary convention known as Demetria, where um, you would actually have letters that stood in for numbers, or you could swap that out. So it's like A would equal 1, B would equal 2, and so on. So this was a well-known convention both in Greek and Hebrew where you could use letters and numbers interchangeably where numbers could stand for letters. And so depending on how you calculate the value of that, um, 666 in, in Greek could spell out um, the beast or uh, Nero Caesar. Um, that's what most commentators think. This is a reference to Nero Caesar. Uh, people have also tried to connect the 666 to, to modern figures, right? We always uh, have this tendency, and it's not wrong, but to want to try to look into our own cultural moment and see, okay, how these things fit. So uh, people have tried to add up 666 to get Adolf Hitler, Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, John F. Kennedy, have all supposedly in one way or another been able to, to find some reference to the, using the number codes to get uh, the 666 as a reference any of those. But again, most scholars agree this is a reference to the Emperor Nero. But what about the mark? And this is another thing that has been made a lot of in the last 30, 40 years in the Christian uh, evangelical pop culture or, or subculture of, you know, what is the mark of the beast? And again, the mark is a parody. It's a part of the deep fake because in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, and then, you know, other places, and we, we've looked at uh, 
even we'll look at again, this image of God's people being marked, being sealed as common. So Revelation 7.3, the followers of the Lamb have been marked and sealed. It says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And Paul Spilsbury, uh, who wrote the, the book, The Throne, the Lamb, and the Dragon, is really helpful. He says, in the same way that the mark of the beast is a sign of loyalty and belonging, not to God, but to the beast. And just as we should not interpret the seal of God as something visible to the naked eye, so we should not think of the mark of the beast as something that we can, uh, can be seen or indeed even as a physical reality. It is a spiritual mark, an attitude, a mindset that shows compliance with the agenda and methods of the beast. All right, so rather than being afraid of, of barcodes or Apple Pay, um, there might be other reasons to be afraid of Apple Pay, but we should be instead looking for what our purchases and our spending reveal about our loyalties. Which kingdom do they align with? What do they tell us about what we really love? Because what is key with the number of the beasts, and, and this is what John says here in verse 18, is that this calls for wisdom. He says, here's the number of the beast, and this calls for wisdom. We are supposed to be wise, to be discerning, to understanding. This is how we withstand being duped by deep fakes. Which brings us to our, our third insight here in this passage, and that is that we must endure by unmasking the almosts. We must endure by unmasking the almosts. And this is the whole point of, of all of this, is that followers of the Lamb would endure, that they would not be drawn into almost Jesus, that they wouldn't be duped by the deep fakes that are out there that tend to draw us away from really following Jesus with our whole lives. And this is what you get in verses 13 through 9. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. And if anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a cord, they shall be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. That is the message over and over again in the book of Revelation to God's people is faithful endurance, patience. Part of the way that we patiently endure in faithfulness is by learning to spot and unmask the almost Jesuses. Because in one of the ways this happens so often is, is it's not that it's like we abandon Jesus completely, but that it becomes Jesus plus something else that makes us okay. Jesus plus something else that actually rescues us. Because most of us here, I mean, maybe some of us, I don't know, but most of us here, I doubt, would ever show up at some kind of satanic cult ceremony and sit through it and be like, huh, this feels just like church. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the kind of deception that happens. But that's the whole point. The dragon is at work, but he masks as an angel of light. And here are just a few examples. Just a few examples. Does your view of Jesus cause you to discount large swaths of scripture? Uh, do we ignore overlooked collective texts or is no longer relevant? Or, or where do we see the, the kind of, uh, if we only have a view of, of sort of just Jesus and me, that doesn't take into effect a, a broader love of neighbor and concern for the other? Or does your view of Jesus leave you nearly faultless and leave your opponents completely irredeemable? Or were you only associate with people who are like you? Or, and this one is especially convicting for me, does your view of Jesus look a lot like you, such that if you took, 
Jesus out of the equation, not much in your world would really change. The functional hope and longing that you have is primarily related. And again, not that you would necessarily say this consciously, but you would write this in your journal, that, you know, dear diary, this is where my hope lies. But that at your operational level, that your functional hope and longing is primarily just getting a little bit bigger, nicer home. If I could just get that, then life would be good. Or if I could have just, I don't want a super luxury car, I just want a little bit nicer car than what I have. Then things would be good. If I could just get a little bit more vacation time or have just a little bit smarter, more obedient children, then everything would be okay. Or if my body could be just a little bit thinner or a little bit more in shape, then, then life would be good. Or, or if I just knew that I was going to have just a little bit more in my retirement account so I could, I could finally relax and not worry, then all these things would be great. All my needs would be good. That's a, that's a fake Jesus. And again, it's not that we reject Jesus. It's just so, yeah, Jesus is important, but also what I really need is this one other thing. Then I'll be okay. So easy to confuse the American dream for the good life in the kingdom of God with Jesus. And I battle that one every day, every day. But I have to remember it is a deep fake and that there is a beast, a monster that is trying to draw my allegiance away from the only hope that I have, the only one who has actually died, who has actually risen from the dead, who can actually defeat death, who can actually rescue me. So Jesus' deep fakes are all around, but the real lamb, the real Jesus, he has defeated them all. And if you are with, with him, your name is indelibly inscribed in the book of life. He has sealed you with his mark on your forehead. And yes, you are in a battle. And yes, the serpent accuses you day and night before God. But you have an advocate with the Father. And you can sing with all of your heart that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, of word I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So with your brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on him and endure and take hope. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been thrown down. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they did not love their lives to the point of death. And keep calling one another back to that truth, back to the blood of the Lamb, the real Jesus, the one who gave his life for you, to free you, to make you whole, who always keeps his word, who never deceives you.